The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Episode 17, we're doing serial killer movies, specifically me and Leo's favorite ones. And the popularity of serial killer stories, movies, documentaries, books are evident in pop culture. CSI Pe- took over TV. People are obsessed with this topic. We're up, people are obsessed with like the, the evil nature to humanity. So it's, it's something side. It's very popular. It's fun to talk about. And there's a lot of really, really good movies uh-huh. on this subject. We picked our four favorites to go over in this episode. So these are just our favorite uh Serial killer movies. There's obviously so many great ones, but we enjoy watching these ones the most. Before we get into it, uh, if you like our podcast and our content and you want to help support us, the best thing you can do is subscribe to our YouTube channel, share it with people, follow us on Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts. Leaving a five-star review helps so much for us to get seen by other people, specifically those written reviews. Write a couple sentences, whatever you want. We don't care. Just leave a five-star we review. We would love it. Thank we you. Love you. Thank you so much. Um, we don't have a marketing team. Again, it's just it's just me. Leo does all the editing. I do everything else. Um, uh, hit the notification bell for new episodes that come out. Hit that bell, guys. And also, before we start, we have a, a friend, another guest spot from our buddy Liam Pringle. He's a TikToker who has like a bunch of great movie content at Liam Pringle 1 on TikTok. Um, so Liam's going to give us his top favorite serial killer films starting now. Go. Thanks, guys. Here are my five favorite serial killer movies. Number five, Monster. Eileen Warnos had an absolutely fascinating story, and this one presented how cold the world can be. Number four, Natural Born Killers. This presented serial killers in a psychedelic and trippy manner that made for a fresh and captivating film overall. Number three, Cure. This is a beautifully filmed Japanese serial killer movie that I couldn't help but throw into the list. Go into this one completely blind and let it work its psychological magic. Number two, Zodiac. This is a literally puzzling mystery thriller that really took a lot of twists and turns while still being genuine and authentic. Made for a great serial killer movie. Number one, it's got to be American Psycho. Christian Bale was perfect for the role and the blend of narcissism, classism, comedy, and murder made for an incredible movie. All right, we love the list, Liam. Good job. We got a couple of the same ones, mm. but um, everyone go check out Liam at Liam Pringle One for more great film content. Let's get into this. Let's dive in, man. First movie we're going to go over, probably, I think, both of our favorite serial killer movie. It's Yeah, it's, it's great. Seven. Which came out in 1995, directed by the great David Fincher. He made this after Alien 3. Yeah, so he made Alien, Alien 3 in 1993, and then yeah. he made this for 1992. Mm-hmm. Uh, the movie is about two homicide detectives, a rookie and a veteran, both on the hunt for a serial killer who uses the seven deadly sins as his motive. This is a, an extremely dark, disturbing film that I think is one of the first um, films to show such graphic sides of uh, human nature and especially um, to show the gruesome killings of serial killers in such detail and uh, authenticity um, with graphic imagery and content. Yeah, and I mean, David Fincher is one of my personal favorite directors. I think the guy's a living legend. He has a very distinct style. He's a perfectionist. 
He has unique editing philosophies, and he's also a master of hidden special effects in yeah. plain sight. Mm-hmm. And um, to begin the movie, Fincher is known for his opening titles. He doesn't do it in every movie, but in a lot of his movies, he has very unique opening titles. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the movie Seven has very disturbing opening titles. Yeah. He sets the tone immediately for the movie. This movie's not only going to scare the hell out of you, but it's also going to challenge you mentally, um, emotionally. You know, it has that Nine Inch Nails song, and he works yeah. with Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross all the time now. Yeah. Um, he wanted the credits to look like a serial killer room, so it has that scratchy handwriting. Mm-hmm. And at times, like the film, it's hard to watch, and it's ugly. Yeah, it's disturbing, the imagery they have in that. I think it's just three and a half minutes, but also it sets you up to see what this film is. It's a precursor to, to what the tone of the movie is. Yeah. And um, this movie, it is a procedural police drama, but it, it really isn't. This movie's more of an investigation of humanity and the, the darkest depths of mankind. And it's like a, it's a meditation on evil and uh, inhumanity. And, and the it, ironic thing about it is it's a film about serial killer and all his slangs. Yeah. You don't see any of the killings. You don't see any violence. The only time you see violence is when Brad Pitt's character at the end, at Mills, gets hit by by uh, John Doe and mm-hmm. breaks his arm, which we'll talk about later on. But I mean, it's it's a physically, it's not physically violent. It it's um, it's psychologically it's violent. It's, yeah. psych- it's psychologically violent. Yeah, and um, it implies a lot without showing what happens. It shows the aftermath of the violence. Yeah, probably the film's greatest strength is the uh, dynamic between. Morgan Freeman's character Somerset and Brad Pitt's character Mills because they are such what makes the movie so compelling is the characters in it and these two are really drawn out well well performed um, um, characters and they're opposite sides of the same coin they clash at times their perspectives on the world are completely um, different the way they uh, handle um, their police work is completely different the way they approach it um, and their philosophies and ideologies are completely different, so they clash all the time. Yeah, their relationship is very entertaining. You can't yeah. help relate with both of them. You know, uh, Mills, Brad Pitt's character, is this energetic, youthful, arrogant guy, mm-hmm. and then um, Freeman's character, Somerset, is wise and has a mature nature. And you kind of you relate to both of those figures at the same time. In the film, it shows the price that good men have to pay to stop evil. Mm. And it's such a dark movie, like you've pointed out, that their characters, and the movie's filled with so many good characters that their goodness counter the evil acts and the darkness of the film. Yeah. And I, well, I think the the brilliance to Somerset, um, Morgan Freeman's character, is they hint at it, and you can kind of tell that when he was young, he was probably idealistic, um, just like Brad Pitt is yeah, currently. just like Mills. But then the world changed him um, and it, ter- it turned him cynical, and he began to hate the world. And now he's reached this point in his career where he thinks the world is beyond saving. And that's why he wants to retire, because he feels like um, the world's so, f- so messed up, um, there's nothing more I can do. And my, I'm, I'm destroying my life just trying to—I'm, like, sacrificing my life for a futile effort because the world is so—it's just—it's gone. Yeah, and like you said, they're both on opposite sides of the spectrums. Yeah. Somerset— he put in his retirement. It's his last week on the force, yeah. and he gets hit with this case. And Brad Pitt's character, he's a rookie on the homicide detective unit, so mm-hmm. they get put together. Again, opposite situations. Brad Pitt's ready to work. He yeah. wants to fight. He wants to solve murders. He wants to solve this murder. He thinks he can make a difference, and he thinks the world can still be saved. And Somerset yeah. has already given up on the world. Yeah. And he, it's not that he doesn't 
believe in humanity, but again, the world is so ugly, and what he's seen in this city yeah. for so long has disturbed him to want to leave the force. Yeah, exactly. And what's interesting about this this movie is we don't even know what city it is. It's an unnamed city. It seems like it looks like East Coast. Um, and what's really fun is the filmmakers purposely made it rain in every single exterior shot. It's always raining there. Um, they did that for two reasons: to create this like n- uh, never-ending feeling of dread. And then also they felt it was easier to uh, make it raining in every scene because they wouldn't have to worry about bad weather if it's bad weather in every shot. Yeah, so it's a really good uh, emotional and uh, cinematic effect. Also, practically, it's, it's convenient. Mm. So yeah, that also adds to the film's darkness in the, in the brooding dark look. It was also achieved through um, a chemical process called bleach bypass where the silver in the film stock was not removed which deepened the dark, shadowy, shadowy images of the film. That's why this film has like this unique look yeah. compared to a lot of other movies. Like the blacks are so black and yeah. the lights are so light, and it's just very ultimate contrast. Yeah, and the, it just it looks so unique than other films. And just like the screenplay, like the screenplay is like kind of a straightforward script. Yeah. Uh, it's a homicide investigation of all these murders, but Fincher takes this script and he turns it into this almost disturbing nightmare experience fairy tale, mm-hmm. where like. Not many filmmakers could have done what he did and turned it into a masterpiece of a horror si- serial killer film. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of like the pacing, his editing style, the sh- the shocking nature of of the violence, I mean, of the crimes that he shows. Like this film was came out in 1995. Yeah, yeah, but still, like this was a risky film for the time. Yeah, a lot of studios didn't want to take a shot on this. Mm. And especially the ending, which we'll get to in a little bit. Yeah. It's a dark movie. Yeah. It's a dark take in the mid-90s. It's it's a difficult movie to watch, and especially if you're not used to these kinds of films, because what it illustrates is um, it, all over the world, there's so many people in the world, and most people are good, but there there are some few people out there that are just evil. And this movie really delves into what it would be like to interact with someone like that, and what kind of consequences do their actions have on the world. You know what I mean? And we need people like Somerset and Mills to be able to to protect society from these kinds of people. Yeah, and despite the film's um, content being so dark and evil, Fincher also does a great job creating lightness in the film. You know, out of nowhere, there's these scenes where where um, Somerset comes over for dinner, and as yeah. soon as he opens the door, you hear Marvin Gaye's Trouble Man playing. Yeah. It's a very light, fun, playful song. Mm. It's, a, it's a very light dinner scene. And amidst all this terror and this dread and all these dark, evil scenes. Yeah. And then also when Tracy calls Somerset to ask to meet him in person, Somerset's just listening to some old jazz music. Yeah. And it's just, it's just like change of pace and kind of as a viewer... It, it relaxes you a little bit, lets you put your guard down because you've been so tense the whole movie and every yeah. time there's a new murder, you're just more on edge and more on anxiety. And he just loosens it up just to give you more of it in a, in a little bit. Yeah, and you learn more about the characters in those scenes. Like that dinner scene I love because after they have dinner, Gwyneth Paltrow goes to bed. Um, those two, they start going over the case. And then um, it, there's this really funny moment because you can see how they're very different. Like Brad Pitt um, clearly doesn't drink wine because when he gives... Uh, um, Somerset a glass of wine he pours a, a tall glass about this high filled with wine and then Somerset takes the glass and he looks at it and he's like what <laughs> <laughs> so they're, they're very different people and you can see the way they carry out how, how they handle um, their jobs like for example um, when Brad Pitt decides to illegally kick down J- uh, John Doe's door um, Morgan Freeman obviously clash with him about that and then opposite side of that Morgan Freeman uh, illegally obtains the uh, library records from his uh, FBI agent friend and uh, Mills doesn't like that so they have 
um, conflicting natures with how they approach their lives and their jobs. And again, so we're we're talking about a very important movie in the in the twist genre. Yeah. So there's gonna be some spoiler alerts. If you guys haven't seen this movie, you might want to fast forward a little bit. But we're gonna talk about some shit uh, about this movie. Yeah. That's just gonna blow your mind. So spoiler alert. Here we go. So Kevin Spacey's role in this film was kept secret for so long. Mm. He's uncredited. It's similar to Mad Damon with Interstellar, where you yeah. didn't even know he was in the movie, mm-hmm. and he wasn't even advertised in the film. And obviously, Kevin Spacey plays John Doe, the killer. Mm. And what I love about the script and what Fincher did directing is you don't see the killer for what, halfway through the movie? Like an hour more, and a half yeah, in? more than that. It's got to yeah. be an hour and 20 minutes into Absolutely. the movie. Absolutely, yeah. I should have checked the timestamp, but he, you don't see his face for so long. But you see his actions and you see what he's done. Yeah. And his, you see his hands in the opening credits and stuff like that. Yeah, but, but the know, thing is so many movies and shows, they'll as they're showing you the detective storyline, they'll be showing you the killer storyline. And so this is unique in where it keeps that mystery and builds that mystery up until we're just dying to see who this killer is. Who Who is this person? Yeah, you don't even get interaction with him until he's cha- he uh, gets caught by Mills and Somerset and yeah. then the chase ensues. Yeah. Speaking of the chase, so during the chase scene where Somerset and Mills are chasing down John Doe. Which I think is it's one of my favorite foot chases. Yeah. Like that and Point Break, absolutely fantastic foot chases in film history. Yeah. Before they break down the door... Um, in the in the movie, this is where John Doe injures um, Mills and breaks his arm. Yeah, and um, this wasn't originally in the script. What happened was they were filming this chase scene, and Brad Pitt literally broke his arm by sliding and breaking his arm against a, a, a windshield, I think, of a car. Mm. And um, they had to put a cast on, so they had to alt- they had to alter the script and some dialogue to have Brad Pitt's character Mills were cast throughout the film. Mm-hmm. And since this was early into production, a lot of scenes he has a broken arm when he's not supposed to have a hurt arm yet, so he has to hide his arm throughout yeah. the scenes and stuff like that, like behind his body and stuff. So mm-hmm. try you can might be able to catch there it. There are a couple can. shots where you can see he's you can see his arm but he's got the sleeve rolled down, but you can see it's thicker because there's a it's bulky because of the cast underneath it. Yeah, it was a very serious injury. It, it was a broke a break that laceration that went down to his bone. Damn. Yeah. So it was pretty bad. But so he wasn't supposed to have a broken arm throughout the yeah. film. But that chase scene's incredible because it starts out with them at the door and then um, John Doe starts firing at them and then with Howard Shore's music, all the brass and horns going crazy, and then there's that that incredible chase through the apartment complex outside and there's that tracking shot where Brad just jumps across like outside on those like dumpsters and those bins. And then it leads outside into the street, um, and they're running across the, the city street, and then it leads to the alleyway where Brad Pitt knows he's there, but we don't know where the, where he is, and there's this dump truck sitting in the alleyway. And this is where um, John Doe, um, surprisingly, he uh, he physically incapacitates Brad Pitt by hitting him with uh, like a tire iron, and then he holds a gun to his head, and then we think he's like he's gonna kill him, and he must want to kill him kill him but for some reason he decides to spare mills and then he runs off yeah but he's sparing mills for, for a reason for a reason because because as we're understanding john doe has an incredibly intricate plan laid out that he um has been working on for years and keeping brad pitt alive is part of that plan yeah we'll get to that in a little bit and some people say this movie is too gory for them and too violent but again Fincher doesn't show the kills. He doesn't show any of the violence. Again, the only violence you really see is the very last scene of the movie. Yeah. And then when Mills gets hit with the tire iron. A lot of what you see are just photographs of the uh, of the killings. Which Fincher does such a great job making just as disturbing as if you were watching violence on screen. Yeah, exactly. Because, like, for example, with the, um, the pr- prostitute killing, 
we have the scene in the interrogation room where where the other victim, the man, he's just hyperventilating, telling them the story. And, and you're, we don't know what happened, but we can tell whatever happened has caused this person to have an, like an insane panic attack. And he's he's shaking and he's we don't we want to know what happens. And then at the end of the scene, we just get a, a quick shot, a photograph of the event and it's so disturbing not even the event there's just the just the uh tool that was made for him to wear to penetrate the yeah the the escort yeah so we don't even actually see the act but just from the building up the tension with that guy's story and the way he behaves to that photo of the instrument that's all we need and it's it's probably more horrific just using our imagination you know what I mean? Yeah. The investigation is going pretty poorly. I mean, even though they get access to his apartment, yeah, they but still don't, they're not close to finding it. Yeah, him. exactly. Because we underst- we're beginning to understand how how and how brilliant this killer is, and he's so prepared, even for an unexpected surprise like them knocking on his door, that they still aren't even one step closer to catching him. So the entire investigation, they've just been trailing trailing him the entire time with absolutely no clues to who he could be, and then. Um, just out of nowhere, John Doe shows up at, at the police station and turns himself in. And it's that disturbing image where Kevin Spacey's just covered in blood and his fingers are bandaged because he cut out, he sliced off his fingerprints and he's screaming at the detectives, detectives! What an amazing moment in the, in the movie. So shocking too. And then this leads to the climactic uh, ending. John Doe says that he has more bodies and he wants to take them to him. And there's this actually great scene where um, they're with their captain, I think it's a captain, and yeah. they're discussing whether they should do it or not. And yeah, take, with uh, John Doe's lawyer. And it's this great setup where, can you explain the filmmaking behind it where they, he changes the shots or Fincher does multiple shots with one take? Mm. So he, he sets it up and it's like a wide shot that moves to a medium shot and then comes back and does like a side shot? The way Fincher uses the camera work in this movie is... He, Based upon the conversations and the power exchanges going on in the conversation, one character will start in power and then it'll change to another character being in power in the situation. And so he cuts to the di- these different shots that in the camera changes to show um, on a visual level. And we, we're subconsciously interpreting how the power dynamic is changing throughout the conversation. Yeah, and this is super apparent in that uh, dialogue scene mm-hmm. between the detectives and their captain to see if... They're going to let uh, the, te- the detectives take John Doe to find more bodies of victims. Mm. And so obviously this is a lie that John Doe has created so that he can fulfill his plan. Yeah. So at this point, he's fulfilled six of his seven deadly sins. He still has one remaining. The last yeah. one left is wrath. John Doe takes the detectives to this middle of the wasteland in the middle of some random state. Mm. And um, there's a van coming down the road. So Somerset has to go and, and flag down this van to try to stop, see who it is in yeah. case it's a, it's a surprise attack. And there's a helicopter uh, surveilling the situation. So then Brad Pitt's character Mills is left alone with John Doe. And this is where we finally see the fulfillment of John Doe's plan, mm. where his plan all along was to have Mills become his final deadly sin murder, which is wrath. Mm. So instead of him committing wrath himself, he becomes the sacrifice for Wrath's deadly sin. Mm. And he has already committed the sin of envy by killing Mill's wife. And he was envious of Brad Pitt's normal life. So because he, he can never have a normal life. And this is where we get the famous line, What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? So what happens is as Morgan Freeman goes, he stops the truck driver and we end up seeing it's a delivery man. This guy says he got paid 500 bucks to drop this package off at this exact time at this exact location. So Somerset says, sets him away. And then he's looking at the box, and after a few minutes of, uh, of, um, of hesitation, he opens it. We don't see what's in the box, but 
Morgan Freeman's reaction is terrifying. He jumps back in disbelief, and then right away he understands what's happening, and then immediately he tries to to stop Mills from doing anything. So he starts running back to Mills and John Doe. And this is such a powerful scene because th- this is an amazing performance by Brad Pitt because Mills is this is this arrogant guy who again wants to catch this guy. He wants to stop him. Yeah. And then he has to deal with the struggle. And also, I'm sorry to interrupt, but okay. this this entire time, and especially when they're talking in the in the police cruiser on heading to this location, Mills thinks that John Doe is full of shit and he's just crazy. And he has he has absolutely no fear that anything could happen. And he basically gets confirmation from Somerset that Gwyneth Paltrow's head, Tracy's head, is in the box. And so then you're you're dealt with this. You have to watch Brad Pitt's character Mills deal with this internal struggle of whether or not he's going to kill John Doe. Mm-hmm. And the problem with doing in killing John Doe is is if he if he kills John Doe, he helps him fulfill his seven deadly sins. Yeah. And what John Doe wants is to be revered and remembered and studied forever. Yeah. He says it multiple times. What I've done will be remembered and studied for decades and mm-hmm. for years. Yeah. And if you don't kill John Doe, he loses because he doesn't get to carry out his seven deadly sins. He doesn't complete it, and he never gets studied besides being a, a douchebag serial killer. Movie of the week. Yeah, basically. But if he, if he fulfills his seven deadly sins, then he'll live on forever. Mm-hmm. And so if, if Brad Pitt's character Mills kills John Doe, he completes the seven deadly sins. Mm-hmm. So that's why Morgan Freeman tells him if, he, if you kill him, he wins. Yeah. But Brad Pitt's character Mills can't help himself, and there's no way he's not going to kill John Doe for what he did to his wife. And there's this, ama- this amazing shot of Brad Pitt just trying, he's weighing the options and he's trying, he doesn't want to kill him, but he has to. And then it, David Fincher throws in, because Brad Pitt seems to, it seems to be like he's going to stand down, but then Fincher throws in a really quick cut of Gwyneth Paltrow's face. So it's like you can imagine, you, you see Brad Pitt basically imagining his wife's face. And then once that cut happens, he throws his gun up and just unloads on John Doe. Yeah, it's a very emotional ending, and it's an insane twist. And when I was the thing about this ending, it was it wasn't the the preferred ending by the studio. So yeah. Fincher took this job because he got an accidental um, alternate ending script, which had the box had in the box in it. Mm. The real ending that the studio wanted to do was it would be a race against time to save Tracy's life. So dumb. Which would have been terrible. Yeah. And then there's also another version where Somerset kills John Doe instead of Mills, which. Yes, there's, it's an honorable ending because that way it saves Mills' life and he still has a life to live. But in this way, it's better because the killer wins and it's pretty freaking nuts. It's, in, it's unbelievable. And the ending is so shocking and the studio didn't want that ending even, before, even with Brad Pitt signed on. And so what happened was Brad Pitt told him he wouldn't be in the movie if they changed the ending. That's why I love Brad Pitt, yeah. man. He's like, I'll only do this movie if that's the ending in it. It's great. Yeah. And then the final thing we hear on this film, the final line of dialogue is Somerset saying, the world is a fine place and worth fighting for. I agree with the second part. Yeah. It's a very emotional line. So he's changed his perspective on the world and still thinks that he has, he has work he can do to help improve the society. And then the opposite happened to Brad Pitt where he was this idealistic, um, up-and-coming um, like energized youth, like young detective who's going to make a difference. And then um, the evil of the world just completely destroyed him. So they kind of changed their, their perspectives on the world actually uh, completely uh, changed into the opposite direction for both of them. Yeah. I love this movie. It's fantastic. If you've never seen it, watch it. Yeah. It's probably the best serial killer movie ever made. 
It's it's easily one of my favorite David Fincher movies, and he's made some great movies. It's up there. And it's one of my favorite Brad Pitt performances. The acting in this movie yeah. is phenomenal. Morgan Freeman's great yeah. in it too. Everyone's so good in this movie. Yeah. Let's move on to American Psycho. Yes, I love this movie. So this is one of my favorite um, dark comedies. Um, I don't know how Mary Heron, the director, people are surprised that um, a woman actually directed this film, mm-hmm. but she was able to balance humor and graphic violence and in such a profound way where she made the uh, the heinous acts of a serial killer hysterical. Yeah, and she really captured the tone of the book too. Yeah. The book is insane, and the movie is a really great reflection of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so this was in this was made in two thousand, directed as you said by Mary Heron, stars Christian Bale as a wealthy New York City investment banker and serial killer. And this is a cult classic film. We've seen it a couple dozen times each. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, it's, the thing with this movie is, like you said, it's a dark comedy. The more and more times I see it, the more I realize how funny it is. Yeah. And I laugh harder every time. It almost gets to the point where um, sometimes I'm watching this movie, and even when I read the book, because when I read the book, I was laughing out loud. And every time I watch this movie, I just crack up even more every time I watch it. But it also, I, sometimes I wonder, I'm like, is this is it wrong to be laughing so hard at these moments? Am I a psychopath? <laughs> there are so many good lines in this yeah. movie and in, in the book too. And um the film in story is basically a satirical social commentary on the shallowness of the wealthy elite, consumerism, sexual insecurity, and apathy yeah. in the gen- in general. This film um was such a critical success and people revered his performance so much it, it led him into this leading man stratosphere and catapulted him into the next phase of his career. Yeah, this is one of my favorite Christian Bale roles of all time. 100%. And I love the character of Patrick Bateman. He's so fascinating. Like, ironically, like Batman, which Christian Bale plays, <laughs> Patrick Bateman is also a character with multiple personas. Mm. You know, he has like three main personas, in my opinion. In public, to his friends and family, he's Patrick Bateman, a wealthy, charming, handsome investment executive banker. In his personal life, in his private thoughts, which you hear throughout narrations, he's an arrogant, narcissistic sociopath. And then there's an inner side to Patrick Bateman where he's a psychotic killer who tries to hold back when he can but is unleashed when his urges become too great to control. Mm. So really, I see I see three different versions of Patrick Bateman in this movie. That's an interesting way to look at it. Um, and Bale is so good in this because... The way he delivers his lines in his American accent, this smug, um, elitist accent, you can't help but just laugh at everything he says. And even when he's doing the most horrific acts of violence on other people, you still—it's uh, like this weird thing where you're just like kind of rooting for him. Yeah, he's hilarious, and, and like you want to see the next kill. You I know have what to I mean? return some videotapes. <laughs> <laughs> What's that for? Uh, for taping something. Duct tape. I need it for taping something. <laughs> And this movie is like so metaphorical too. And like, we all know that infamous skincare face uh, mask routine. Yeah, that sequence I think is one of the best parts of the movie. Yeah, where he's going through all the products and rituals he does every morning because you're getting not only a, a real taste of the character of Patrick Bateman and how obsessed with himself he is, mm. but also to me, the face mask represents the mask that he wears every day as mm. Patrick Bateman, where he spends so much time caring for it. So as no one can see beneath this mask. There's not. A, it's a perfect mask. It, there's not a single blemish on it. Mm. It's pristine because he doesn't want anyone to see how ugly he is underneath of it. That's that's a good uh, way to look at it. I also look at it as he's just obsessed with physical perfection, which is why when he's having sex with the with the uh, prostitutes, 
um, as he's having sex with him, he's just he's flexing his muscles and staring at himself in the mirror the whole time because he's just so obsessed with the the perfect body that he's created. Yeah, you know I, mean? I don't think there's been a more self-obsessed character in fiction never in, in movies I've ever seen in my life. Absolutely not. The guy's so in love with himself, it's insane. But actually, it's it's actually very similar to how Christian Bale tackled this role because surprisingly, when he originally auditioned for this role, um, they rejected him. The producers didn't want him for it. But he was so committed to the fact that he could, he was meant to play this role, that he spent nine months after his rejection for this part. He spent the next nine months working out and preparing for this role, even though the the producers attached Leo DiCaprio and Ewan McGregor um, and other people. He kept lobbying himself to the producers to give him another chance, and um, he even called Ewan McGregor when McGregor was offered the role by the producers. Um, and he was going to accept it. Christian Bale called him on the phone and persuaded him to turn it down so that he could be in it. <laughs> <laughs> and also, when he finally got cast as the role and he met the writer of the book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Brett Easton Ellis. Yeah, yeah. He, he met him at a bar and Brett Easton Ellis is waiting for him at the bar just having a drink. And then all of a sudden, Christian Bale shows up in character, in wardrobe as Patrick Bateman. And Brett Easton Ellis said he was so um, uncomfortable that he had to ask Christian Bale to stop the routine because he, was, he thought he was going to get killed in real life because he did it so well. And this is one of his most iconic performances of all time, for sure. 100%. He should have been Oscar, Oscar nominated for this. Yeah. And, I, and one of my favorite parts about this film is the use of voiceover. Yeah. And for me, it basically shows that Patrick is basically like directing and narrating his own life as it happens rather than living in the reality that he exists in. Mm. And it's, it's like he's watching himself carry out each like a play of himself yeah and he's like giving us play by play yeah basically and then when he finally gets to kill that's when he comes out from being a director yeah you know he constantly refers to himself in the third person and he's like he talks about patrick bateman as if it's someone else he's like there's an like there's an idea idea of patrick Patrick bateman Bateman." and says things like that so like it's like patrick bateman is this vehicle which he didn't choose Mm -hmm. but he's trapped inside and really he's just this crazy sociopathic killer yeah there's this kind of surrealist quality to the filmmaking that Harry, Mary Heron carries out where things just don't, sometimes things just feel a little weird and kind of not realistic. Like, for example, Willem Dafoe's character, he's he plays an, a, a detective investigating um, the, mur- the disappearance of Paul Allen, who uh, Bateman murdered. And they have three different scenes together, three different uh, small uh, inter- interviews, in uh, not interrogations, but like questioning. And so Mary Heron, the way he, she directed uh, Willem Dafoe's for the first scene, she had um, Willem Dafoe behave as if he was very suspicious of Patrick Bateman. And then the second scene they were together, she had Willem Dafoe behave as if he was completely oblivious to the to Bateman's guilt and was just more of like a buddy. And then the third scene, she had him act um, like mildly suspicious. So he com- he changed his, his tone completely in every interaction to make it feel like kind of surrealist and is like... Because it has an ambiguous ending of it all in his head. So it gives us that nature of that quality. You know what I mean? Yeah. And Patrick Bateman's kind of a unique serial killer that we've seen from other films. Whereas, like, killing doesn't seem to be a complete necessity of him. Mm. And more of, like, a hobby. Mm. For example, before he kills those the escort, the blonde one, he spends a night with her and yeah. with another girl. And, yes, he, he sleeps with them and everything. And at the end of the night, he's, like, going for, like, a screwdriver, I think, or something. Yeah. And he's thinking he's probably going to kill them. But then he lets them go, mm. which means that he doesn't completely kill on impulse or urges. But yeah. he also 
does too. Like he also kills people who who are lower than him or he d- doesn't think should deserve to be alive like the homeless man. But then also that begs the question, are the kills actually in his imagination? And we're, so when we see a kill, is it really happening? Because when he lets the girls go, maybe that's the reality. And then the other time when he kills the prostitutes, that's his imagination. Well, this whole movie is full of reality and delusions and yeah. what's real. Is he really killing these people? Is yeah. he killing some of these people? Is he not killing any of them at all? Yeah. But uh, one of my favorite parts of the character is his obsession with pop music and how intense he is with his fandom for these random artists. Because in the, in the book, there'll be pages and pages devoted to describing like random musicians in their recent album. Yeah, that's one of the most entertaining scenes I've ever seen in a, in a movie. Where that, Yeah, that Paul Allen kill. Yeah, he gets Paul Allen, played by Jared Leto, really well, completely drunk, and then he gets him into his apartment, Paul Allen's apartment. And then you see Bateman put on this like raincoat outfit yeah, to protect the, his the, suit. There's a newspaper everywhere. Puts on hip to be square, yeah. and is just going into like history facts and 101 about the band and yeah, about yeah. the music and about the, the genre. And he's doing like the, the hip dance, and then he's just like being super goofy. And he's hiding an axe behind his but back. But he's like so excited. You can he's see giddy. Like, yeah, he's just like, he keeps in anticipation for the kill. And then, and then he, he goes over to Paul Allen, he's like, Hey, Paul. <laughs> and then you, he finally swings the axe down. And that's when you see that inner killer of Patrick Bateman come out. Yeah. That he hides so well he, from everyone. He lets that monster out. He's like, see if you can get into the Dorsia now, you fuck. <laughs> I love the, the shit with Dorsia the getting Dorsia. reservation. The reservation of Dorsia is fucking hilarious. You didn't man. leave your name. They know me. They know me. <laughs> And so he kills him, and he basks in it, and he just smokes a cigar and sits there. But what's really great about that shot, and it was actually an accident, so in that shot, after he kills Paul Allen, um, in the actual physicality of making the scene, they had like a, a blood effect that splattered on him after he did the act, and the blood splattered on one half of his face. So half of his face is completely clean, and the other half is completely covered in blood. And it was just an accident, and because the, the way she shot it was... She showed both sides of him with different angles. So one angle you can see the monstrous, and his hair's messy on that side. Mm-hmm. So in one angle you can see the monstrous true nature of Patrick Bateman, and on the other side you can see the clean cut Patrick Bateman that he shows to the public. Wow, I thought they did that on purpose. And they watched the footage on playback, and they were like, "Wow, that was amazing!" And they didn't even plan it. It's an accidental metaphor, yeah, for the character. It's amazing. <laughs> he actually uh, based some of his performance on Tom Cruise. Did he really? He, he was trying to figure out where to go with the character. And then he, he was uh, watching a, a late night talk show with Tom Cruise in it. And he said that he saw this fake friendliness and emptiness in Tom Cruise's eyes. <laughs> which you know is there. Yeah. Which, and he was like, that's exactly what I need to capture. <laughs> He's a very observant guy. Yeah. Most, act, most great actors are. And you know, while Bateman hates people... He considers inferior to him. He's also obviously extremely envious of people who are more successful than him yeah. or better than him, especially his coworkers. And this leads to the killing of Paul Allen because that terrific scene, the business card scene, the business cards where he's where the, the business cards in the movie is really a big part of that scene. But in yeah. the book, he's obsessed with business cards, yeah. and um, cons- they're constantly going through them. When he finds out, according to him, in his subjective mind, that Paul Allen's card is getting a better reaction and, and is better, he's like, "Oh my god!" He even has a watermark. He draws it (laughs) (laughs) and then the guy goes uh the guy i think peter he goes patrick you're sweating (laughs) (laughs) it's insane he kills the guy over a business card (laughs) but again it was actually uh, sorry what's a really cool thing about that scene um which shows like surrealist nature of the movie is every one of their business cards says vice president 
each and every one of them. And all their cards are almost identical. Yeah. That's the ironic thing about it. You couldn't tell the difference looking at them side by side. It's bone. (laughs) (laughs) And then again, this leads to, are these all delusions? Are these just in his imagination? Would you kill somebody over a business card? Or is it just a crazy fantasy because Patrick is, is probably a sociopath internally, but sociopaths aren't necessarily killers. Yeah. That's more of psychopath territory. Yeah. Sociopath would mean that he just has Lacks crazy empathy. fantasies about wanting to kill. So yeah. is this just a fantasy of wanting to kill Paul Allen, mm-hmm. which they show in the movie, but did it even take place? Yeah. But there are, so, there are some hysterical moments in this movie. Um, I just want to try a list a few off. Like, I love when uh, Willem Dafoe goes to see him in his office for the first time. He's got, like, a porno magazine, and he's watching a porn DVD. And then Dafoe walks in, and he's like, oh, <laughs> he throws it into his drawer. And he's acting like nothing happened. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, when Chloe Sevigny comes into a, goes to his apartment, and he just grabs the nail gun, and he's just standing behind her holding it out. <laughs> like, again, are these fantasies or not? They can be. Yeah. And the cool thing about this movie is... It's left open for interpretation with an ambiguous ending. Yeah. You know, so basically we all, if you've seen it, it ends where he basically goes on a killing spree and then he makes it back to his apartment and he confesses killing a bunch of people to his lawyer. And then the next day his lawyer thinks it's a practical joke. And also his assistant, Chloe Sevigny, um, I think her name's Jean in the movie, finds this weird notebook full of all these horrible, horrific drawings that he does. And there's the, the exactly the chainsaw murder is actually drawn in the notebook. Yeah, and also yeah. the apartment he killed Paul Allen in is pristine. The bodies aren't there, mm. and um, it's even being rented, and the, the realtor has never heard of Paul Allen. Yeah. And so... And also for Paul Allen, people think he's Paul Allen half the time. Yeah, and then his lawyer even says that he had uh, lunch with Paul Allen two days ago. Yeah. And so it ends with this ambiguous tone and open ending where are they fantasies? Are some of them fantasies? Did he kill people but really Paul Allen was the fantasy? And it's it's really fun because you get to make up your own mind about if he killed all these people or not. Yeah. And the last shot, the last thing we see is a sign that says this is not an exit. Yeah. And then another thing that shows that it's, it's probably a fantasy is he's when he's being chased by the police and then he points a handgun at a cop car and shoots like four times and blows, and blows it up. up. And he looks at the gun. He's like, he's what like, the huh? fuck? <laughs> I can't believe that just happened. That's not real. But that, I love I love after that he goes to his uh, to his work to the uh, to the uh, the building and he goes inside and the security guard is like, hey, what's up, Bateman? He actually, no, he calls him Mr. Smith. Yeah, oh, yeah, he calls him Mr. Smith. And then uh, Bateman walks past him and then he, then he goes turns around shoots him and goes back around and goes up it's such a fun scene the panic that he has on his face (laughs) this movie it's really fun and you got to be open-minded to it in terms of if if you're not a fan of of like gore and horror and killing it's like he's misogynistic you know what i mean it's just the character he's, he's an awful person but you have to be able to separate like your ideals from just this this fictional movie and this character. And if you can, it's a really enjoyable experience. It's so funny. Yeah, I, I love this movie. I've seen it like 15, 20 times. And oh, at I, least. Like I said, every time it gets better and funnier. Yeah. And you pick up new things about it. Mm. But um, this is easily uh, one of my favorite Christian Bale uh, roles, hands down. And obviously, it made our list of our favorite serial killer movies. Fuck yeah. It's a good list. Move on. Yeah, let's move on. All right, let's move on to Silence of the Lambs, which came out in 1991, directed by Jonathan Demme, starring Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins. Jodie Foster plays a rookie FBI agent tracking down a serial killer with the help of an imprisoned psychopath, Dr. Hannibal Lecter. 
And this is actually based off of uh, the real-life relationship between criminology professor Robert Keppel and his work with Ted Bundy to help investigate the uh, Green River killings in uh, the late 1960s. Interesting. And so Jodie Foster is fantastic in this movie. It's her movie from yeah. the beginning to the end. You know, the, the opening of the movie is with her at FBI. And um, it, Agent Clarice Starling is an iconic character mm. in in serial killer cinema, and she's a she's great one hero. Of, she's one of the most memorable FBI agents in yeah. general. Like her, Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah, like, she's up there. Great. And 30 years later, this film is still a chilling masterpiece. It swept the top five categories at the Oscars. When it won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress, Best Actor, and Best Screenplay. Mm, and it's rare. It was that the other movies that have done that is like One Flew Over the Cuckoo Nest. And I think there's one other movie that's done that. Maybe there's The couple, Godfather yeah, or something like that. Only a couple. So it's a very rare accomplishment for a film, which shows the testament of how great of a film it is. It's one of the best movies ever made. Absolutely. And in terms of the serial killer genre. What's unique about this film is it has two incredibly memorable serial killers in it. And so it has Hannibal Lecter and it has Buffalo Bill. And the thing is, Buffalo Bill kind of gets cast in the shadow by Hannibal Lecter because Lecter is so profound of a character. And when you think of Silence of the Lambs, you think of Hannibal Lecter. But Buffalo Bill in his own right is a fascinating character and a great villain in this movie. Yeah, and Hannibal Lecter by Anthony Hopkins, one of his best performances, probably his best performance... And there's so many interesting interesting things about it where people have these common ideas and phrases about Hannibal Lecter in this movie. And one of them is, um, hello, Clarice. Mm. And there's another theory where Hannibal Lecter doesn't blink in the movie. And both of these things are completely untrue. Uh. He never says, hello, Clarice, in the film. And he blinks many times in the film. Mm. And... This is clearly a testament to two things. Anthony Hopkins' incredible and haunting performance as Hannibal Lecter. It probably looks like he doesn't blink. There are long stares for sure. Yeah. But he also never says hello, Clarice. And this is also what's called the Mandela effect, where you imagine something to be true when it clearly isn't. And, and, a, and a, a group of people yeah. believe the same thing. And this thing. is a state of pop culture. Yeah. Yeah. Hello, Clarice is not a line in this movie. Yeah. And then he does blink. Watch the opening scene with him. He has long stares, but he blinks many times in this film. 100%. And what's really cool about this role is, um, believe it or not, Anthony Hopkins had struggled for three decades to find consistent film work. Um, he had been working and trying and auditioning and trying for roles for 30 years and he wasn't getting any good traction he had always been a great stage actor and he always did that but um when he was cast as Hannibal Lecter he decided that if it didn't work out with this movie he was going to retire from film acting and just work on stage acting in Britain so he was like at the he felt like he was at the end of his career no one had given him a chance and no one had given him like the recognition he thought he he deserved so he, it was like a last-ditch effort for him to make it um, as a film actor. Wow, that's super fascinating. Which is amazing because it's one of the most loved performances ever. Yeah. And, like, the, the, the great thing about this movie is at the Oscars, Billy Crystal, like, dressed up as yeah. Hannibal Lecter at the opening. Yeah, yeah. He he's, like, I'm having, out. he's like, I'm having some people at the Academy over for dinner. Would you like to join me? <laughs> <laughs> it's hysterical. Yeah. And it's the performance of the year, obviously. Yeah. And, it's, again, one of the most iconic performances in serial killer genre, horror genre, mystery genre. Yeah. Everyone knows Hannibal Lecter. And every rendition you can think of, his is the best. And the thing with Lecter is he's so intelligent that it seems as though, like, there's nothing he doesn't know. It seems like he knows everything about everything. He always has an answer, and he's always one step ahead of everyone else, which t t ends up being true because 
all along his entire plan was to be was giving misleading information to the feds on this wild goose goose chase to find Buffalo Bill in exchange to make a deal for him to get the prison transfer which aided in him getting the opportunity to escape. Mm-hmm. So he was the the feds thought they were using him, but in in reality he was using them the entire time, which yeah. shows how how powerful of a manipulator he is. Yeah. And Jonathan Demi did a fantastic job directing this movie. Deservedly yeah. got the Oscar for best director. And he does a lot of interesting things filmmaking wise where he's constantly putting main characters in in some of the characters into boxes or cages yeah. starting with Clarice in the elevator in the beginning of the film, um, Hannibal Lecter inside of his cell, and even Buffalo Bill's victims in the bottomless pit in his in his basement. Mm-hmm. So that's a that's a really interesting thing he does to his characters. So Demi in a lot of movies he has his uh, characters look directly into camera when they when it's when it's two people having a conversation rather than looking just off camera at the other person and it would cut to the other person. He has his actors look right into the lens. So that they're speaking to the audience directly. And it's an effect that he's always used to great effect. But I think Hannibal Lecter staring into the camera, looking at the audience with his piercing eyes in that like disturbing manner. It was just so iconic. And it just gets under your skin every time you watch it. Every shot of Hannibal Lecter is iconic and disturbing. Like yeah. just the first time you see him when he's in his cell and he's just standing there upright and like a motionless position like a statue yeah. but his eyes and his mouth is just like had, like slightly open and he's like so interested in Starling yeah. and uh, intrigued by her and I want to talk about the relationship between Starling and Lecter for a little bit and wh- why does Lecter like Clarice so much and, and why doesn't he end up killing her at the, at the end of the movie which clearly he could have if he, if he escaped. I think he's fascinated by Clarice um, which is why he um he pretty much makes this currency exchange where to give information to her, he wants information about her and her traumatic past. And he wants to analyze yeah. her. So I think he's when he finds someone who's intelligent and strong um, and, and interesting, he is obsessed with trying to understand them psychologically and break them down. And also with Starling, she's the first person he's ever touched in years mm. when when he graces her hand yeah. with his finger it's the first time he's touched another person especially a woman yeah in like what as long as he's been locked up yeah and so that's obviously a brief moment but i think that's also a reason why he's obsessed with her and so interested in her and also most people refer to hannibal as his nickname hannibal the cannibal but the thing with clarice is she never gives him a, she never mentions his nickname and when she speaks to him she always refers to him as either Dr. Lecter or Mr. Lecter. So she always shows him this sign of respect as if she 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 knows he's this horrible, monstrous person, but she still um, understands his intelligence and has a, a kind of respect for him. Yeah. Clarice is a very brave character, but I think she also, she's very intelligent. And she knows that she doesn't really pose in any danger from Hannibal Lecter because Hannibal Lecter... He preys on predators. Yeah. Those are the kinds of people he kills. He doesn't just kill random innocent people. Mm. He kills predators and bad people. Yeah. And people take advantage of other people. That's like his MO. He knows everything except for the lambs. What do the lambs mean? And yeah. so we're we're constantly they're constantly going back and forth between the story that Clarice tells him about the lambs on the farm that she used to grow up on. Mm. And basically her story shows that Clarice Starling is just a very good innocent person because she ends up 
saving one of the lambs from slaughter. Mm-hmm. And that's why she runs away from home to save one of the lambs. And she'll mm-hmm. sacrifice her home to save a lamb. And she reveals how innocent of a person she is. It's her saving the lambs of in her profession. Like she's saving the woman that these serial killers are killing. Like they're, they're being slaughtered like lambs. Exactly. So that's why she's will do anything to save the woman in the pit, even though she's down there when they find Buffalo Bill and she's in that pit and she's fucking terrified. Yeah. And every time I watch this movie, I am scared out of my mind it's watching Clarice horrific. in Buffalo Bill's basement, even when the lights are on. Yeah. Even when the lights she's are on in my living room and lights are on in my yeah. movie or in the movie. But just to, the the situation she's in where she's definitely in, in a huge basement she doesn't recognize. There's so many doors. Yeah. There's like hidden compartments and stuff like that. There's yeah. a freaking pit in the bottom of the basement with a woman inside of it. And Demi obviously builds attention by not letting us know where Buffalo Bill is. Yeah. So we don't we have no idea where he is either. And the awesome thing about it is you think they find Buffalo Bill and they they're about to raid the house and they have like the flower van and everything yeah. and they're about to go knock on the door and they ring the doorbell and it shows the buzzer in Buffalo Bill's basement and you're like, "Oh, they they got him. They got him here." Yeah. Well, the, at simultaneously, um, Clarice is going to check out uh, another end of the investigation. Like another lead. Yeah, yeah. which she doesn't think is going to lead to anything, but she it's just the end she has to finish up uh, yeah. investigating. It's literally just for, like, paperwork. But little does she know that she's actually about to talk to Buffalo Bill. Yeah, so what happens is um, um, when Clarice locks on the door, we think that the cops the, the cops are at the door of Buffalo Bill's house, and then when Clarice, uh, when she knocks on the door, Buffalo Bill opens it. I think it's one of the most famous cuts in film history. It's such a misdirection and such a surprise. Yeah, you can tell a ton of movies are trying to copy that effect. And then when when Clarice goes into the house, it it literally takes her 30 seconds to understand um, something's wrong, something's off here. And then when she starts seeing the moths, you're like, holy fuck, get out of there. And then Buffalo Bill obviously understands that she's onto him immediately and fires the gun at her. Buffalo Bill is such like an an interesting serial killer because it seems realistic yeah. compared to what we'd seen in cinema before. This like crazy psychotic guy who clearly, clearly they talk about had mother issues. Yeah. Um, and the way he captures the woman to get into the van is just so smart. Yeah. And, and devious. Yeah. And effective. Yeah. And terrifying. So many iconic images with Buffalo Bill, like when he cross dresses. And so Buffalo Bill thinks that he's a transsexual when he really, he isn't. Hannibal Lecter explains this, this to Clarice uh, during one of their conversations because um, Buffalo Bill constantly transforms himself diff- into different emotional beings. Yeah, throughout his life, he's always changed his persona. And so he th- he's trying to become what he thinks his mother wanted, which is a woman. Yeah. So that's why he dresses up as a woman and he's trying to make this woman suit to become what his mother wanted because yeah. his mother wanted a girl instead of a boy. And so he's not actually a transsexual. Not there's anything wrong with being a transsexual, but his character is confused about being a transsexual. Yeah. It's a fascinating character. And like I said, if it was just him in the movie, it'd still be a great movie. But since Hannibal is so so memorable, he casts a, a big shadow over Buffalo Bill. Um, and one of my favorite things about Hannibal, and it's an iconic image for the movie, is the mask. That mask they put on him. Um, cause it's terrifying. It's like a muzzle for a dog. And if you see a mask like that on a, on a person, you're, you're like, what, what, is, what kind of person is this where they require a mask like this? It's, it's terrifying to think of. And they actually, um, built it from an old goalie mask from the 1940s. That's crazy. Yeah. 
It looks like uh, what they tried to do in Con Air too. Like Con yeah, yeah. Air kind of copied it with um, <laughs> Steve Buscemi. Steve Buscemi's character. Like they basically like created a, a Hannibal Lecter. It's yeah, kinda, it's yeah, pretty it's cheesy. A big rip off. <laughs> we'll have to do Con Air in, in our um, best worst movies. We'll of just all do time. a whole Nick Cage podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but the mask is terrifying, especially when he's wearing it yeah. and he's talking to um, like the, the governor or the yeah. senator. Yeah. It's just like holy crap, this guy's scary as fuck. <laughs> Even though he's he's tied down with a with a with the jacket mm. and the mask. You still feel like he's dangerous. Yeah, you still feel like he could kill everybody in the room. Yeah. And the genius of Hannibal Lecter's escape. We talked about this in our villain episode, but we'll, yeah. we'll talk about it again. And just It's just so smart the way he tricks all the guards. He tri- he's Like you, you've said earlier, he's, this, he's smarter than everybody in the world. Yeah. He's a genius intellect, which makes him so terrifying. Mm. He's not a physically demanding person. He's not young and strong and youthful but yeah. his his mind is so sharp and he's so intelligent that he just outsmarts everybody mm. and he tricks the guards to get into the cell with him and he tricks and he steals the pen from the from the the doctor yeah. the arrogant doctor yeah, yeah. to escape the handcuffs and then the way he escapes by cutting off the face of one of the guards stealing his outfit and putting the face on himself it's just genius. Unbelievable, He yeah. puts the dead body on top of the elevator to slow the cops down. And it's a long scene. It's like 10 minutes of we think that he's on top of the elevator and the SWAT's getting ready and they shoot on, shoot at him. And it's just, it's an amazing sequence. And then it cuts to the ambulance and then he just sits up. Oh, my and God. And he looks at the EMT. And you're like, oh, fuck. <laughs> Terrifying, man. It's so smart and fun, though. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. It's such a well-written story. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the screenplay is fen- phenomenal. It's a great adaptation. Yeah. I, the, I love this movie. And then the climax scene, again, where we're, we're going back to Starling in the basement of Buffalo Bill. And Buffalo Bill, early in the movie, they teased about his uh, night vision goggles, which he has used. Yeah. And then so he puts on the night vision goggles, and he's basically stalking Clarice throughout his basement. And it's, it's so terrifying. Yeah. And you're just tense the entire time. Jodie Foster's just shaking. She doesn't know where to go. She's clumsy because she yeah. can't see. She's tripping over things. And you can see there are these shots where Buffalo Bill is, like, reaching out to grab her. Yeah. And, like, I always wonder, like, why doesn't he just grab her by the face? And why doesn't he just grab her and, like, choke her or something like that? But, again, she has a gun in her hand. So, obviously, I think there's two reasons why he, do- why he doesn't grab her. Is he doesn't want to get shot because the gun's obviously in her hand. Yeah. And also... He's toying with her, yeah. with her dread. I think he's just enjoying watching her in peril. Like he, he like almost like combs the side of her face. Yeah, it's just so disturbing. Like he's attracted to her horror. Yeah, and then eventually he he cocks his gun and she hears it. And, and Clarice, boom, ba ba ba. See you later. Great reaction and time. The lights go out. Uh, I mean, she the, shoots open the window. Holy crap. It's and a great ending. It's a great ending. It's a great climax. The first time I saw this movie, I was terrified. This is one of the scariest scenes I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Probably up there. Imagine seeing it in theaters. Holy crap, dude. <laughs> what a movie. But it deservedly won Best Picture because it's an unbelievable film, and it's one of my favorites, and I think it's easily uh, one of the greatest dr- crime films ever made. All right, that's three movies down, one more to go. We're going to be doing The Talented Mr. Ripley. Came out in 1999, directed by Anthony Mangella, starring Matt Damon, Jude Law, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Gwyneth Paltrow, amazing cast. Kate Blanchett. Kate Blanchett's in it too. Um, personally, one of my all time favorite movies. This is in like my top 15. I adore everything about this film the characters, the acting, the directing, the locations, the set, Italy. It's, yeah. it's all wonderful. And it's based on the book of the same title by. The fantastic Patricia Highsmith, who's a great writer. If you like fiction, go read her books. She's made some great ones. Yeah, Ripley's a great character, and this is easily one of my favorite Matt Damon performances. 
And it's probably his best movie that he's ever been in. I, I could say that, yeah. You, you could say you can make the argument that it's, it's like Dad or Goodwill Hunting or or uh, Saving Private Ryan, but you can you can make the case for this movie. This movie and this movie was nominated for a bunch of Oscars, um, and it was the second to last movie that Anthony Mangella made before he passed away um, at the age of like fifty one or something. He was very young, mm-hmm. but um, this is his best film he's he made, um, and this is the the rare occasion where you get to see Matt Damon play a villain. Yeah, you get to see him play a sociopathic killer. Um, and he he's such a great performer where it's it's slowly you, you slowly see the subtle differences that Tom Ripley has compared to a normal person and they start to get bigger and bigger until they finally crescendo and the real Tom Ripley is finally revealed. Yeah, I know Mangella had wanted to make a film about Tom Ripley for a long time but yeah. he never wanted to do it until he found the right character actor to play Tom Ripley and Matt yeah. Damon was his choice and yeah. obviously knocked it out of the park. And Tom Ripley is honestly, in my opinion, one of the most fascinating characters to, in, in fiction to come out of the 20th century. Yeah. In my opinion, you know, he's he's quite literally a con man. He's also highly intelligent, completely narcissistic. He's adaptable, an opportunist, a closet homosexual, and a serial killer. And as a member of the audience, you can't help but feel empathy for him because he comes from nothing, and, mm-hmm. you, and you relate to him in his struggle and where he comes from. And also... I think the term, the talent in Mr. Ripley comes from his greatest talent, which is to lie. And lying has a lot of different um, facets where it is impersonating someone or uh, tricking someone or manipulating someone. Um, So Tom has this incredible skill with being able to to get people to believe whatever he wants. Yeah, Tom acts as a mirror and replicates the behaviors of the people in his company. Mm. And... He has a gift for forgery, impersonations, imitation, and yeah. lying, like you said. Yeah. And even blatantly in the film, tells Dicky, played by Jude Law, about these talents. He tells him, he, Dicky asks him what his skills are, and he's like, "Forgery, I can forge signatures, yeah. I can impersonate basically anybody. Yeah. And Dicky's too arrogant and, and ignorant to realize that these are he's being honest. He this is, is a joke. This is the first time that, yeah. that Tom Ripley's being honest with him in the entire film. Yeah. Because he's constantly lying, and he's so good at lying and telling fibs. And he gets to, into Dickie's inner circle because of his ability to manipulate and control the other people around him. So the, the, it first begins with Ripley, uh, with Tom finding them on the beach and pretending to be an old friend of his from Princeton. And next it, it goes to him dropping the vinyl records out of his briefcase, which Dickie obviously loves. And having that connection to jazz is what draws Dickie to become friends with Tom. Mm-hmm. So he's able to use these uh, these lies and, and this manipulation to control Dickie and get him into his life. It even starts sooner than that. Yeah. I mean, the movie opens up, the first act, Ripley seems like this very innocent, likable guy. I mean, he has some, he tells fibs here and there. One of the first things he says is a white lie where that older couple asks him about Princeton and he lies saying he goes to Princeton. He yes. went to Princeton. Yeah, he can't help but lie. Yeah. And since and that's because every single lie he tells leads him more and more into the life that he's never had and the life that he desires. Yeah. It starts with lying about Princeton mm. with uh, Dickie Greenleaf's father. Yep. And then uh, that leads to the trip that he goes on to bring Dickie Greenleaf back from Italy. So yeah, so Greenleaf is, uh, is a shipping magnet. And um, his son Dicky has been living it up in Italy for years, spending so, his inheritance. So he's he hires uh, Tom to go to Italy to get Dicky to come back to America. Yeah, and then he meets Kate Blanchett's character while mm. traveling, where yeah. he lies again 
claiming that he's Dickie Greenleaf. For really no reason at all. But it does lead to a relationship with yeah. her and more interactions later on. Yeah. And then again, like you said, lying to Dickie about Princeton, lying to Dickie about the jazz, which leads to him eventually being invited to stay indefinitely at Dickie's house because yeah. they have this past connection that Dickie thinks is true. Mm. And so he constantly lies because it gets him what he wants. And then even though Tom was hired to carry out this job, he finds himself so enamored and obsessed with Dickie where he becomes a pseudo version of Dickie where he, he t- begins taking on his character traits and his interests and he eventually wants to be partners with Dickie and he wants to live with Dickie. Yeah, he falls in love with Dickie yeah. Greenleaf. Yeah, exactly. Which leads to eventually, again, spoiler alerts, him going on this basically killing rampage starting with killing Dickie. Yeah, so what happens is... Um, Dickie rejects Tom eventually, and this rejection um, crushes Tom and destroys him, and it leads to him killing Dickie because he completely loses his grip on reality, and he loses control of himself and lashes out at Dickie and beats him to death on a, on a boat. Yeah, there's multiple reasons, I think, why, why uh, Tom kills Dickie. I think, yes, anger and rage from rejection, obviously, but also... Envy, you know, yeah. Tom envies everything about Dickie. And yeah. That's why he he gets caught wearing his clothes. He gets caught. He impersonates Dickie on his, his watch free time. and jewelry. So he's obsessed with Dickie and envies his entire life. So he, when he, what Tom does is he wants to make Dickie's life his life. Exactly that. Mm-hmm. And killing Dickie could be to Tom the next best thing. To not being with Dickie is yeah. killing him. Because if he can't have Dickie, why not be Dickie? But he doesn't eventually think that he doesn't. His plan isn't to become Dickie yet. Yeah. So he kills him on the sailboat, and then the. Con- what, so what's the, what's funny about Tom Ripley as a character in all of his stories is things just happen. He his actions just cause more things to happen, and he kind of just wings it as he goes along. Yeah, and it's usually really things work out for him. Yeah. That's the thing about his character is he's yeah. a horrible guy, but that's what's so interesting about him. It always works out for Tom Ripley. Because he's so great at lying. Yeah, and it's just that's why he loves to lie. It never it, Bad things happen, but he always comes out on top. Yeah. And so he kills Dickie on the sailboat, and then he goes back to the hotel, and the concierge, since they're in Italy, they see this white American guy, so they assume that that's Dickie Greenleaf. Yeah. And so that's when he gets this moment. There's this great shot where he's panicking because he just he just killed Dickie and 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 dumped his sailboat with his body in the in the bottom of the ocean. Mm-hmm. And then he then the concierge calls him Senor Greenleaf, and then Tom Ripley looks at him like, wait a second. So then that's when he starts to steal Dickie's identity, and he's so so good at impersonating. And he kind of looks like him, and he's yeah. a handsome guy too can, when he's yeah. not wearing glasses. And that's this is when the tone of the movie shifts from the first act. I think it's like a two act structure movie. Mm-hmm. And They're kind of the, two different movies. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And then the second act is um, Rip. Tom has carried out all these acts, and now he's trying to deal with the repercussions of his actions, and trying to he's struggling to stay out of the eyes of the law. And the thing I love about Tom Ripley is we just watched him kill this guy. But also, for me, when I watch it, it's like, this might not be his first time he's killed somebody. Yeah, you don't know. You see, It seems like it's possible. It seems like, yeah, it could be his first, but it also, you don't know much about him. You know he's a con man. And because what happens is, yeah, at first he's very distraught after he kills Dickie. But a week later, he's wearing Dickie's clothes, and he bought a new apartment with Dickie's money, and he's just living it up as Dickie Greenleaf. Happiest he's ever yeah. been. So the brilliance of his plan is, yes, um... He kills Dickie, but um, he uses his his um his innate ability to impersonate 
to to make it seem as though Dickie is just living somewhere else. So he's he ends up playing both Tom Ripley and Dickie Greenleaf depending on who he's in a situation with. Yeah. So again, Tom Ripley's very smart. Yeah. And he, he figures out a way to get out of the situation. But the biggest crux in his plan is when Philip Seymour Hoffman shows up. Freddie, Freddie, Freddie Miles. Who and he like this is an early uh, Hoffman movie. And since he's obviously immensely talented, he steals every scene he's oh, in. He's so good in this he's movie. So, he's so funny, and he's just like this arrogant, suave, like egocentric American who's just like thinks he's the hot shit in, in Europe. You know what I mean? Where, where's a corduroy jacket in Italy? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Tom, we're just talking about you. Tommy, 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 Tommy. And, and Freddie is everything that Tom hates in people. He's yeah. loud, obnoxious, unattractive, self-centered, and incredibly arrogant to think that he's the ticket of the talk of the town in Italy. And he can't believe that um, Dickie actually enjoys being with Freddie. And again, jealous of Freddie because Dickie chooses Freddie over him. And also, Freddie kind of sees through Tom immediately. Mm-hmm. He he immediately doesn't like Tom. Yeah, there's that great scene where him and Dickie, Freddie and Dickie are listening to jazz in that yeah. little booth, and uh, they're about to go meet friends, but mm-hmm. Tom really wants to tour Rome with Dickie, like Dickie promised him. Yeah. But then uh, Dickie tells him, just go on, enjoy yourself. Then he goes back to the booth, and there's this great take of, of Philip Seymour Hoffman and Freddie just, just, at just dancing, but he's just staring directly through Tom Ripley. Yeah. And he's, you can just imagine what he's thinking in his head. Yeah, like he, he has pity for Tom. Yeah, like Hoffman just portrays so much with his eyes in that shot. Yeah. It's just phenomenal. And which is brings us to the point where Dickie's been missing for so long. And then uh, Freddie um, goes to uh, what he thinks is Dickie's apartment. He finally tracked down Dickie mm-hmm. and finds Tom there wearing clothes that Dickie likes to wear. And this is where immediately Freddie can see right through Tom's facade. He doesn't obviously know he's a, a, a serial killer, sociopath, Not but yet. he knows that something's up. And he and this is the first time where Tom can't lie his way out of a situation, mm-hmm. which leads to Tom eventually killing Freddie Miles. Yeah, so Tom is on this killing spree to cover up loose end after loose end yeah. after loose end. And it's so fascinating to see because you're right, the first... Part of the first half of the movie, he doesn't kill anybody. Yeah. In the second part of this movie, this guy is just murdering everybody <laughs> in the social circle. He's about to be the only person in this group of friends. <laughs> so why does Tom Ripley imitate people and steal identities? Because he thinks that he himself is worthless and doesn't have an identity. So he's never felt whole as a person. And so when he in, in, impersonates another another human being, he feels like he has improved himself exactly he's just full of self-hatred yeah. tom hates himself never wants to be himself and would much rather be living someone else's life yeah um things begin to settle down pretty quickly and he meets peter and peter becomes this this man who tom feels like he can establish a, a intimate relationship with um they don't say it but peter is uh definitely gay yeah peter's a homosexual yeah. and tom ripley is a closet, closet homosexual, homosexual basically and so but what happens is tom finally finds this man who has similar interests to him and tom feels as though oh he can finally open up to someone and be tom ripley the real tom ripley with another person but what happens is because of tom's actions in the beginning of the story and because of him lying to to uh kate blanchett's character marge not marge um, Meredith, so him lying to Meredith in the beginning of the film and establishing that relationship with her, what happens is on a boat trip with Peter, 
which is supposed to be a great getaway and a romantic um, weekend with Peter. This is the end of the movie, too. The end of the film. Um, he Tom runs into Meredith. Now, Meredith thinks that he's Dickie Greenleaf, and Peter thinks that he's Tom Ripley, and they're on the same boat. But Meredith hasn't seen Peter yet. She thinks she saw him. She mentions to, to Tom, oh, is uh, Peter here? And that's when uh, Tom is like, it's over. And so this leads him, he has to kill Peter, because otherwise if Meredith and Peter run into each other, his, he's up because they think he's different people. So his, his jig, the jig would be up. So he has to go back to, the, to the, um, the cabin and murder the one person that he felt that he could have had a true relationship with and the one person he could have been himself with. I'm going to disagree with you here. I don't think Tom sees Peter as someone that he could settle down with and have a relationship with. I think because we've we've seen Dick, I mean, we've seen what Tom does and what he does to imitate people and what he does to get into people's lives and steal their identities and everything. I think he's clearly using Peter as a mark. And you can kind of tell this when he's playing the piano at Peter's apartment and he seems like like Peter's off camera in, in another room and, and Tom, you can tell he's just kind of lying through his teeth. He's trying to make himself feel vulnerable Vulnerable. I think he's being fake vulnerable to put on an act. I think he's putting on an act for Peter to make Peter fall for him so that he can eventually, he'll, he'll use Peter to get away from his situation. But eventually, he's going to get rid of Peter and move on. He's going to kill Peter eventually. I, so yeah. Personally, I think that, yes, he'll, he'll use him for intimate reasons, but I don't think he's using him to, to have a relationship. And I think he's, he's going to be expendable to him at some point. So I, I disagree with you. I understand your point, but I think because before he kills Peter, right before he kills him, he says, I, I guess I'm just going to be stuck in the dark, which means he'll never he'll always have to be this fake version of himself. Yeah, but he's also and then he also weeps as he kills Peter. But he's also saying that because he's trying to to make to have Peter's defenses as low as possible that, mm. so that he can strangle him. Yes, I think he has feelings for Peter, but I don't think he has long-term feelings for him. I, I think he's a stepping stone for him to keep getting what he wants. I disagree, but... Hey, hey we can disagree. It's, okay. yeah. it's good to differ, interpret different things. This is the first time things. we disagree yeah, about we're usually, we're usually on point. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But then, so after the after killing Peter, it leads to one of my favorite shots of the movie where he's where Tom's sitting in the cabin, and then there's a, there's a closet door with a mirror on it, and it's it's opened, and because of the swaying of the boat, the door is opening and closing, and it's showing this reflection of Tom, and it's moving back and forth, and Tom's just sitting there. It, he's distraught after what he just did, and that's actually the it's a bookend of the film. That's the first shot you see in in the movie is Tom Tom's reflection in the cabin after murdering Peter. You don't know what he did, but yeah. he's it's that shot with the voiceover. Yeah, the if voiceover. I go go back and take everything back, yeah. And, and scribble out my entire life or something like that. Exactly. And then there's also another shot that I think is amazing, which is after he um, after he kills Freddy and gets away with it, Tom decides to quit the charade of being Dickie, um, and he's just going to be Tom from now on. And so what happens is he, he's in his apartment, and he has a black grand piano, and he closes the piano, and then you see two reflections of his head. One's upside down and one's right side up, and the heads are joined. And then what Tom does, since he's breaking free of Dickie Greenleaf, he backs away and both the reflections separate from each other. Yeah, I love that shot. become two people. It's one of my favorite shots, it, too. It's unbelievable metaphor for who, what he's doing. Yeah, because just before that, it's just this great part of the film where he's putting on this intricate act of being both Dickie Greenleaf and Tom Ripley. Yeah. And not only is he being interrogated by police as Dickie Greenleaf... He has to deal with Gwyneth Paltrow as Tom Ripley, yeah. and also Peter as Tom Ripley, and, and he's he, also dating Kate Blanchett 
as Dickie Greenleaf. Yeah. And he goes to the opera with Dickie Greenleaf. Where, 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 as Dickie Greenleaf. So, so he goes to the opera with Kate Blanchett, with Meredith, as Dickie Greenleaf, but accidentally bumps into Marge. Marge and Peter at the opera, too. So he's he's doing this balancing act of both characters yeah. where he's impersonating Dickie and being Tom Ripley. But also at the same time stealing Dickie's life, mm. and then it's just this great, great counter of being interrogated by the Italian detectives, and then he, like you said, he has to give up the jig because the heat's becoming too much. But he did such a good job tying up loose ends, and such a good job creating alibis for Tom Ripley, mm. for himself, and for Dickie Greenleaf that he's able to just blend back into Tom Ripley's existence, which depresses him. Yeah, and <clears throat> and the plan only ever works because rather than just killing Dickie and just putting his body in the ocean, and then just leaving, being able to make people believe that Dickie's still alive is what helps him get out of it because what ends up happening is all the murders that have occurred, um, Dickie Greenleaf becomes the main suspect. So when Tom just becomes Tom, he's in the clear now. Even Peter thinks that uh, yeah. Dickie Greenleaf killed Tom Ripley and yeah. he's murdering everybody up in Italy. So it was the perfect crime because he made his he made the, he made made the a dead person the prime suspect in a series of murders in Italy. So there's no way Tom would ever be suspected again. Yeah, and then he gets away with it. The the movie not ends. only not only does he get away with it, but Dickie Greenleaf's father gives him some of Dickie's trust fund money. Yeah, he gets part of his inheritance. Yeah, it's insane because things just work out. What have again things work out for Tom Ripley in in the past, uh, which we learned from Dickie Greenleaf's um, father's investigator is that Dickie Greenleaf has history of violence against people yeah. uh, and a drunken history of violence and put people in hospitals. And that's why he was in, in Italy to begin with, yeah. to exile from America from investigations mm. of uh, assaulting people. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, he gets away scot-free, except for, Mar- for Marge still thinks it was him yeah. and knows it was him and ends kicking and screaming and yeah. taken away. But this movie, somehow... We were just blessed to get this movie with so many amazing actors before their primes, yeah. before their fame, all still very young in raw talents, and everyone in this movie is phenomenal. Yeah. It's um, just a Jude treat Law to watch. Jude Law got an Oscar nomination for he's this. He's so good in this movie. Yeah. It's one of my favorite Jude Law roles he's, ever. He's unbelievably charismatic and cool and um, like intoxicating, and he plays, like Marge says it herself, like when... When Dickie Greenleaf is giving you his, his attention, you feel like you're the only person in the world. Yeah. You know what I mean? If you've never seen this movie, definitely go see it. Go watch it. If you've seen it but haven't really given it a, a good watch, shut your phone off and watch this movie. It's it, on Netflix. Just put it on. It's beautifully shot. The whole thing pretty much takes place in Italy. Mangiabello doesn't exist. It's made up for the film and the story. But um, it's it's shot. It's 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 wonderful. I think it's one of the most stylish movies ever. It's amazing. The, the clothing, everyone's dressed so cool. Um, the locations, set design, the music—it's a great, great yeah. artistic endeavor they've they carried out. It's a, it's a wonderful watch, and again, top fifteen in my list all time of Hell my yeah. favorite movies—not best of all time, but my favorite movies. That's our; those are our top four, our favorite serial killer films of all time. Yeah, obviously, there's so many other serial killer movies that we'll go over real quickly. Um, like Zodiac, we love Zodiac. It's such a good movie. I've seen that movie like ten times, even yeah. though it's three hours long. That's almost great. But like, we chose to not put it in this episode because first, we already have a David Fincher movie in here, so we didn't want to do two direct a director with two movies in the same subject. Yeah. And also, 
um, Leo pointed out to me that it's not really about the serial killer. It's it's more about the investigation, which, yes, Seven is about that, too, but also we get a look at the serial killer, yeah, too. Yeah, he's involved in the story. And so it's a great movie. Zodiac's an amazing watch, but we, we chose to leave it out despite how much we love it. Yeah. Um, um, Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho is obviously a pinnacle of, of filmmaking um, and one of the one of the greatest serial killer films ever made. It has uh, iconic imagery like the shower scene, like that spiral shot um, pulling back from her eyes. Um, Norman Bates is an iconic character. Um, it has that amazing twist ending where it's revealed that he was actually the mother all along. Um, and it's it's an iconic movie, and it changed cinema. Another great serial killer movie that we love is called Funny Games, and this is an Austrian movie, I think, you're right, mm-hmm. um, which was remade into an American version starring Michael Pitt. Both versions are great. Um, they're very similar, obviously. They're uh, made by Mikkel Hansen. Yeah, the same director yeah. made the American yeah. version, too. And it's about uh, a family on just a, a vacation at their vacation home on a, on a lake, and suddenly they get overrun by this these two brothers, who they say they're brothers, mm who turn out to be serial killers, and they basically spend the entire movie tormenting them mm-hmm. and eventually killing them. Yeah. And it's an awesome movie. It's so tense. Very and disturbing. Psychological, yeah. like, messes with your head, and it's 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 really freaking good. It's so clever, too. Yeah. It's got Tim Roth and Naomi Watts in it. The American version. Yeah. I the think American. the Austrian version's better, but, yes, like... better, yeah. The, the American version's still very good. But honestly, it's actually pretty much shot for shot, the identical films. Yeah, even the sets are almost yeah. shot for shot. Um, and then a, a recent serial killer movie that I really liked, I honestly I saw the trailer, and I thought it looked stupid, and then I watched it, was uh, Happy Death Day, which came out uh, three years ago. Which is essentially, it's Groundhog Day, but with a serial killer. So this girl keeps reliving the same day over and over again where she's murdered by a serial killer. And so she's trying to figure out who the killer is. Because if she stops the killer, she'll stop the uh, the resetting of the day. I actually haven't seen that. That sounds cool. I mean, it's, it's, it's great. It's it's a cool story. Um, and it's hysterical. Great lead actress. She she does an amazing job. And I th- it, it was a, a lot of fun. I, I recommend it. If anyone wants to watch something new, check that movie out. Happy Death Day. Then we got Halloween, obviously. Um, Mike Myers. This is a classic slasher movie, which is why we didn't put it in the serial killer movie category. It's, it's both. It's slasher. It's a serial killer. It's horror. But we chose not to put it because, you know, Mike Myers is just like, this like... Basically, a, a killing zombie. Yeah, you don't learn much about him. There's there's no characterization to him really. Yeah, so, so he doesn't ch- have any dialogue. Yeah, it's a great movie. It's awesome. Yeah. But we we left it out of the category. Well, we'll that's more of a horror movie to us, despite it being about a serial killer. Yeah. Um. And so yeah, that's like the end of our list. I think of other serial killers that we considered for this episode. Yeah. And that we really like a lot. Um. Besides from that. If you haven't seen any of the movies we talked about, definitely check them out. Sorry if we spoiled any of the facts. It's, it's what we do. We, we should have called this podcast Spoiler, Spoiler Alerts. Podcast. Spoiler Alerts. I think I like Raiders of the Boss. <laughs> I like Raiders better anyways. Yeah. But, no, um, but uh, these these are great films. Um, and I think serial killer movies are, if they're made well, they're they're such interesting watches. And uh, it's like there's, there's, people are fascinated by this violence and by this... Um, evil that can be um, found within humankind. Yeah, what humans are capable of. Yeah, it's just enticing to learn about. Yeah, and I, I'm obsessed with serial killer podcasts. So yeah. like, I I don't like I don't I, like listening. I got to them. back into them recently, and it's just like I'm so. Uh, it's tough. So like you, you'll come up to me like, yo, you gotta listen to this podcast about like 16 children that were that were decapitated. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't want to hear about that, man. Come on, so good though. <laughs> rather just so like, like a drug. No, I rather like listen to Joe Rogan. <laughs> <laughs> 
Anyways, that's the end of this episode, episode 17, 17. of Raiders of Lost Podcast. Thanks Stay for tuning tuned in. For Thursday, I mean, <laughs> this is Thursday. Stay tuned for our episode on Monday, which will be coming out soon. Lord of the Rings trilogy. Oh, yeah. Get ready. We're going to go th- to the Shire and Middle Earth and everywhere. We're going to hang out <laughs> with some hobbits and stuff. We don't know what's going to happen. It might get a little crazy up in here. It's going to be a good episode, So I stay think. tuned for that. I totally forgot we were doing Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Now I'm fucking stoked. I already got the photos ready for the YouTube. I can't <laughs> wait. Lord of the Rings is the shit. It might be a six-hour episode. For real. And also, we're going to do... Uh, we're going to actually go see Tenet in San Diego this upcoming weekend. Yeah, so we're going to do a road trip to San Diego because San Diego is like the only county in California that's going to open up theaters on September 3rd. Mm-hmm. So we're going to go on September 4th or 5th to go see Tenet. And we don't care if it's a two and a half, three hour drive. We're going to fucking see Tenet this fucking weekend. It's going to happen. And we're going to we're gonna film the whole experience and we're going to make a little video for you guys. Yeah, so stay tuned for that. Probably come out next Monday or I mean next, next Tuesday week, or something yeah. like that. And we'll do a review on Tenet too. Yeah, as well, yeah. And um, if you haven't seen Tenet, don't fucking spoil it. Don't say anything. <laughs> don't say anything. I don't want any DMs. Don't spoil it. Um, again, if you like our podcast, share it. Uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Share us with your movie friends. We know you have some of them. Even if you only have one friend, share it with them. Uh, <laughs> leave us a five-star review, um, spe- preferably with the, with a written review. Those help a lot. Hit that bell on YouTube. Get those notifications, notifications going. Notifications so you know when we're dropping new episodes subscribe, and new videos. Subscribe. subscribe. We love you guys so much. We also have a, a fun a guest I mean, a, a fan sent us something cool, so we'll put that on the podcast pretty soon. Yeah. And other than that, everybody have a great weekend. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for tuning in. Take care. Boom.